Yeah. No, I'm small. You're the small one. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, now I've got with with this. Um, normally, I have my Swiss conscience over here, Verena. Who, um, I have to keep my notes very organized. And uh, now I have even more Swiss people today, so I'll have to be extra organized in my speaking. And you know, I do. I am prone to a little bit of rambling. You know, aren't, aren't I? I? I do <laughs> confess that. That's because. You know, everything I see uh, goes off in 25 directions, and I just hate to pass them by without mentioning them. So I, that's why I get lost sometimes in complicated stuff. And uh, we're going to continue in Two Kings today. Remember, we've been talking about the story. Is this uh, mic working and everything? Yes. Yes, working good. Good. Um, the sound quality is so good with our new speakers that it just, I just don't even recognize the sort of electronic element. Two Kings, which is the story of where Elijah, the prophet, was taken up into heaven and his mantle fell back to Elisha. Now, it's an interesting old story. It occurred in about 840 BC, okay, in the northern kingdom of Israel, some hundred and so years after Solomon. It's time, Solomon and David's the high point of the kingdom. Now then it's split, and there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. This northern kingdom lasted for another hundred years before it was finally taken into exile uh, into Syria. And this, the southern kingdom lasted longer, but not so much longer. So we're in the northern kingdom of Israel. It actually... We might think, you know, people think, oh, in Bible times there were miracles. When I was a kid, did you used to say that sort of thing? Oh, in Bible times there were miracles. I wish there was miracles like there was in Bible times. Well, you know, actually in Bible times, there were vast periods of time where there wasn't very many miracles. And the times that the miracles did happen weren't always the best times. In fact, they were sometimes the very worst of times. And that really is the case here with Elijah uh, coming onto the scene. God sent the prophet Elijah and Elisha after him into a terrible time. Ahab was king. Jezebel, who was actually a foreign wife that Ahab had taken, really was in control of the kingdom. Not only that, but powerful political men such as Hiel of Bethel built, rebuilt Jericho. Remember, which Joshua had conquered and cast down. So we really are in a major kind of reversal. If you were to translate this into modern times, it's something like the Dark Ages, where the church has gone right into becoming a worldly power. And not only a worldly power, but become a worse worldly power than the average worldly power. All right? You know? Didn't it? In the Dark Ages. I mean, better to fall into a sort of friendly king in Germany than to be under the Spanish Inquisition or something, isn't it? Well, so this, this was a terrible time. And it was at this time that God acted and sent in. Now, obviously I can't, I, I, I am actually kind of in the mood today for sort of like lecturing for about three or four hours. <laughs> so I'm not going to. No, I'm not going to. But... I am kind of in that mood, but I'm actually not going to. What, is this, what relevance does this have for us today? Now, 
The reason we're looking at this story, and it's a story where Elijah has finished his ministry and he's now handing over to Elisha. And remember, we've been looking at some of the places that he went to, spiritually significant places, Gilgal, the place of renewal. They revisited this point that has a historical significance. Bethel, which was the house of God, again, historic significance. Jericho, the place of the original victory, the place of warfare and battle and of overcoming spiritually. And then finally to Jordan. Now today, I want to look particularly at the actual handover point, the key to the actual transfer of the anointing. Now why is that relevant for us? You know, the word of God is, and the prophetic elements in it, and it's all prophetic at one level, is like this amazing poem. Do you know how a poem is? It has multiple, multiple levels of meaning. This story has meaning at multiple levels, and it's particularly relevant to us because we are in an age where, well, there's two levels of relevance, really. The first thing that we want to see is we want to see how this applies to Jesus. And normally this is understood as Elijah in this story is a picture of Jesus who has gone through a death and resurrection, all right, across the Jordan, and then he's handing over his mantle to Elisha. So Elisha is then a picture of the church. Okay? So we understand and we draw lessons from this story based on the transfer of the Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Okay? The, uh, Pentecost. So that's one picture of it. But again, it's a picture too of the changing of generations, generally. And we are in a season on the world right now which is a changing of a generation. Great changes are taking place in the world right now. You're not really hearing many of them on the news right now, but in about a year or so's time, you're going to be hearing about stuff that was going on now because the effect is there. You know how the news doesn't really tell you the story until it's all happening, and then they start going into the analysis of why this was happening. There is great shakings coming upon the world right now. Great shakings in the world financial order. The powers of this world are shifting from west to east. Major, major shifts are happening from west to east. The effects of that are only just beginning to be felt. Now, we grumble a little bit about outsourcing to China and Korea and this and that and a few things and how it's affected us. Guys, you have seen nothing yet as to what is coming and how the world's powers are shifting and changing. Right now, uh, I actually, see, I'm in lecture mode for like hours, see? I could go down this road. I can't go down this road right now. Just believe me, okay? We'll talk about it another time. I can't go down this road. <laughs> Come on. Look, I'm telling you, things are changing. Things are shaking. There's a changing of a generation. There's a change of power. And it is important for us, and we've been talking about this. There is an open heaven over us. God is releasing new assignments to his people. Mantles of authority and anointing are being given to God's people. And we are just one among many, and we need to be listening and getting hold of it. All right? Do not expect at this point among us a Toronto sort of style of outpouring. God is doing something different. He does things different in every time. But believe me, there is a great transferring of anointing and authority, and God is wanting to give mantles of ministry and calling. You know, it's no good trying to serve God without an anointing and a mantle. It's the Holy Spirit. 
The flesh is of no avail. Busy, clever people running around doing religious stuff is boring. And anyway, it just builds religious strongholds, which are against God. It builds up the Jerichos, Heil of Bethel. This is the problem, you see. Ambitious people are clever. They muster resources and money, and they do stuff in the name of God. And it actually is a stronghold that actually resists God. All right? We don't want any part of that. We want to lay hold of the anointings of the Holy Spirit. And nothing else. We don't want to do religious stuff. Do gooder stuff. Just a lot of do-gooding stuff. It impresses people. looks kind of good on the surface. But it always has a bitter fruit, and it never produces what God wants. All right? All this kind of thing was going on. Hiel of Bethel, a great man from the church, builds up Jericho again. Right there in the promised land. That's not what we want to be doing. All right, let's be in the Elijah, Elisha mode. Now, what's the key? Because I don't have time to go into it all, but it's a beautiful, poetic thing, this thing. These four places that they went to, and then there's this transfer of this mantle, and then Elisha goes to those same four places in reverse order. We'll have to look at that another time, all those things, because there's a very interesting symmetry between the generations of how things happened and the fruit of it. Just for, I'll just do a little side, just to give you an example. <laughs> Bethel, where Hiel came from, and his name means the father of height, so he is an ambitious father in his generation from Bethel that rebuilds Jericho. When Elisha goes to Bethel later, guess what he finds there? This is a weird story. I can't go into it all now. Of those, remember there's 42, or a whole bunch of youths. It says kids in some of them, children. Started mocking him, said, go up, you bald-headed, you bald-headed and all this stuff. Okay? Bald-headed men may now take some comfort. God does not approve of people telling bald jokes. All right? No. It's deeper than that. And it wasn't kids. This word that is used, youths, it could be sometimes people up to 28. It's young men. A whole bunch of young men came out in a very aggressive uh, way against Elisha. And Elisha, it says, cursed them, or he at least handed them over to God. He didn't actually like wishing evil upon them. He simply removed from them protection. And bears came out of the woods and got them and judged them. Now, do you see what happened, though? In one generation, you have a father who is a selfish ambition, and actually it says he sacrificed his own children at the gates and to build the walls of the city. In the next generation, is it any surprise that the generation doesn't have any respect for fathers? It's not really a genius to work it out, is it? It's just the way the fruit of this thing goes. So anyway, that's just a little glimpse of the kind of symmetry between these places. Now, we'll look at that another time because that is a lecture in itself, isn't it? Well, it's two preachers, actually, right there. I can't go there. <laughs> Let's go back to the key turnover point, and we'll just quickly read it. 2 Kings, chapter 2. Now, they'd gone to all these places, and then uh, the last place they went to was the Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle, this is verse 8, Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and the water parted to one side and to the other, and the two of them could cross over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, 
Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. <clears throat> Good night. If God ever says, you know, ask me for something, Good night. Think of something, whatever, all right? <laughs> He'll correct you if you ask for the wrong thing. <laughs> so he says, ask for something. So anyway, this man of God says, look, you got, I'm granting you one wish here before I'm taken. Ask what, you, what else do for you. And Elisha said, I pray you, let me inherit a double share of your spirit. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am taken from you, so it shall be for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, a chariot of fire and horses separated the two of them. And Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. <coughs> and, El- <coughs> and Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And then he took his own clothes and rent them in two pieces, And he took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Okay, so that's the section we want to briefly look at. We need to be hungry like Elisha for that mantle of Jesus, okay? The mantle, the anointing, the authority, because Jesus promised it. If, you, if I go, the Holy Spirit will come. That was the promise, wasn't it? And we need to be hungry for that and asking for it and seeking it. Now, this, what is the key thing in that reading? What is the key thing that Elijah said, the key to actually getting your wish granted? The key to actually receiving the mantle to see, to see him, to see him. And that is the key for us as well, to see Jesus, okay, to see Jesus. Now, our salvation came that way, didn't it? Our salvation did not come about by rushing around trying to figure stuff out. It comes about by us seeing the salvation that was given to us in the cross, isn't it? Jesus said, just as Moses, remember there's a story, one of the pictures in the Old Testament of the salvation when they were being uh, bitten by snakes and God said to Moses, look, hold up this bronze serpent on a stick and anybody who just looks at it is going to get healed from this snake venom. It was a picture. We do not get saved by our works, not even in a sense works of faith, or at least just enough to look to Jesus. We look to the cross. That's where our sins are removed, isn't it? That's a very simple thing. It's too easy for some people. Some people stumble over that because <laughs> it's too easy. <laughs> Glory to God. <laughs> All right? Don't make it harder than it is. If you've got guilt in your heart, who can step into the resurrection life of Jesus just by looking at it? You don't need to do anything. You're not going to be worthy Good night. That's the whole thing. While we were still in our sins, as the verse that Kelly read, Christ died for us. You're not going to do anything to earn it. Just look and receive it. If you've got a burden of guilt. You know, that's the beauty of the Easter story. You know, you just look at that. You dump your guilt in the grave and you rise with him in resurrection. That's all it takes. The willingness to look.
Now, the thing is with us, and let me just let me just say this in case I get lost in all my lecturings. <laughs> you know, I was walking around yesterday and asking the Lord what was on his heart for, for you, and I'm pleased to say that it's come through in a number of words that are given already. The Lord just wants you to know how much he loves you. That is actually what's on God's heart this morning. I've added all the other bits, thank you. <laughs> Hopefully it's fleshing out. Because most of us don't really see God for what he is like. We see him as something else. We do not see him as the loving father that he is, we see him as something else. And that is the root of all of our problems, actually. In the end, it says, we will see him, we'll be like him, because we'll see him as he actually is. All the deceptions that are in our mind about what he is like are eventually going to be taken away. But it's the most worthy pursuit right now to get as many of those deceptions taken away <laughs> as you can. All right? To actually see him for how much he loves you. Seeing Jesus and seeing the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So sometimes we've seen Jesus and we think, well, he's a nice guy and all that. But the Father, I don't know, he's got some pretty heavy demands. Right? Think that. But you know, the first thing we need to see is how much he loves us and how much the Father loves us. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, when there's a verse, there's, there's lots of places we could look to, but I, I love this the verse from Psalm 103. It says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who, love, uh, who are his children. And he remembers, it says he remembers our frame. He remembers our du- that we are dust. And I was thinking, I mean, there's lots of places we could go, but I was thinking, you know, God remembers our weaknesses. He, he's not actually demanding of us to be something different than we are. He is not expecting us to somehow become these super amazing Christians in order to get his love. But we actually live under that. We actually think that, well, you know, if I was like Billy Graham, or if I was a bit more like Reinhard Bonnke, or perhaps if I was like Mother Teresa out there pouring my life out in Calcutta, or if I was doing... Do you know what that is, though? That thinking? That's that foolish Galatian thinking, isn't it? That somehow our works was going to make us more acceptable to God. It's the wrong way around. I bless those guys, all those beautiful things that all the great men and women of God are doing. But it's the wrong way around to look at that and think, if I'm like that, then maybe I'll have the favor of God. That is the wrong way around. How, for example, do you, you read this? Uh, when Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Does that strike fear in your heart and dread? It does, isn't it? You think, okay, that means as a Christian, I'm supposed to love God, therefore I've got to do all that stuff to prove it. That can be a heavy old yoke even in a marriage, you know? It's like, oh, I've got to love my wife, therefore I've got to put up with this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and all of that. And I gotta do this, and I've still gotta be absolutely nice, even when she does that to me. It's a heavy yoke if it's that way around. Do you know that? That is a very 
heavy yoke <clears throat> when it's that way around. But what if you read it the other way around? What if you read it the other way around? If you love me, you'll keep my... Forget about keeping his commandments if you don't love him. Forget it. Don't even try. If you don't love God, forget it. Because you know why? You can't do it anyway. But if you try to do it and pretend you do it, you know what happens? You end up hating God. You will end up hating God. Because he seems like a hard master. At best, you'll ignore him and keep your head down and just try and stay on the edge of things, like that man who buried his talent. He's such a hard master, I don't think I can keep that. I'll just bury that talent and hope for the best. At least I'll give it back to him in the end. He's too hard. I can't deal with him. And look at the Pharisees, how they kept it. Did the Pharisees love God in the end? Or did they hate him? They hated him. They wanted to torture him and kill him because they were trying to keep commandments without loving him. Look at the Ten Commandments. I was was amazed. I've never thought about the order of the Ten Commandments before. Exodus 20. The first three commandments are about loving God, aren't they? No other gods before me. Not make a graven image, second one, and not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, they could seem like a hard yoke, but actually Jesus summed them up is all the commandments is loving God, that's the first three commandments, and loving your neighbors yourself. But the first three have got to be in place or forget the others. And guess what the fourth one is anyway? It's actually Sabbath, the Sabbath. So get the love of God in place first, And then even before you start rushing around thinking, I love God so much, now I'm going to go and love everybody, even have a Sabbath, all right, just to make sure it's all settled in your mind that God loves you and you love God, and you're happy with that, and we're just sitting here doing nothing, and it's absolutely fine. Then you can start doing some stuff. Then you can start doing some stuff, but because you love him. Now, how how do you start loving God? We love because he first loved us. You've got to see. See. That's where we come back to our story. If you see me as I'm taken up, if you see Jesus as he is exalted, if you see his love, now that is a worthwhile thing to pursue, to see his love, to know his love, to understand his love. And Elisha, kept his eyes absolutely peeled. Wherever, he says, as the Lord lives, as as you yourself live, I'm sticking right here with you. I'm going here. I'm hanging out with Jesus. I'm looking at his love. So that's, that's the first thing to do. Just get close to Jesus and look at his love. And when you understand his love and you begin to be motivated by his love, then you can be of some use. Do not, I forbid it in this church... Anybody feeling guilty? Oh, maybe the pastor doesn't like me as much as so-and-so. Maybe I should go to that meeting, and maybe I should do more stuff, and maybe I should do the kids' work and all those boring jobs that nobody else wants to do. You know, don't do that to me. Please don't do that to me. Or even worse, don't expect me to go rushing around doing a bunch of stuff to make you feel better either. When I was a young church leader years ago, 
I had this little deal with the Lord. I said, Lord, I know you're not asking me to do all that stuff, but I got these people on my back. I'll just go and do it. It's the easiest way to get them off my back. I'll just do that a bunch of stuff. I'll go and do a bunch of door to door. I know you're not saying that today, but I'll, I'll... I used to do that because people would ask you, oh, how much door to door have you done today? And how much of this and that and the other have you done today? But I already knew God loved me. And I didn't care about doing anything. But now that I'm older and grumpier, <laughs> I'm not going to jump through hoops for anybody much. Occasionally for my wife, all right? Fair <laughs> enough. Grant me that. Okay. Fair enough. Add the kids, whatever. That's all right. Uh, it's, all, it's not always easy to know. And sometimes we do need to chivy each other up to do stuff. I'm not saying, I'm not being heavy. But, you know, we put yokes on one another. And we do religious stuff. And we put each other under obligation. You can always tell when it's happening because there becomes a little bit of criticism and sniping going on. Because people are feeling guilty, so they dump their guilt onto other people. And they say, they should have done this and they should have done that. And all of a sudden, before you know it, we're just a bunch of religious freaks, totally busy, busy, busy with stuff, trying to make ourselves feel better. But inside, we're thinking more and more and more that God is a slave master. And he looks more like an Egyptian slave master than the God and Father of Jesus. You know, that was what Gilgal was actually about, the rolling away of the reproach of Egypt. The people had a slave, a slave mindset that I have to do stuff to please. Now, do slaves love their masters? Very rarely. There's a few exceptional, unusual cases you know, and there was a provision for it that you could have your ear born if you loved, but mostly slaves don't love their masters. In fact, even employees don't really love their bosses very much. Does anybody love their boss here? I'm not talking about girls that fancy some cute boss or, you know, guys that have some real boss, but, you know. Good for you. But that's because you're a godly woman. You don't, you, and she's a godly woman. Normally we don't. And Jesus said, look, I'm not calling you servants even anymore, or slaves. I'm calling you friends. Friends. We're friends with Jesus. We walk. We, we like Elijah and Elisha. We talk. I like, I like that little note in there in 2 Kings where it says, they, as they walked along, so Elijah said, we've asked a hard thing, and so on. but then they went on and they kept talking. They were chatting about it, having a conversation about it, weren't they, as they went. And that's what we need with Jesus. Okay, what's the deal here? Lord, are you really asking me to do that? Or Oh, no, let's, let's, let's talk about this. Let's think about this today. And that's the key, seeing him as he really is. Not a slave master, not an employer. He's not some hard, mean God that's asking ten times more than you can do. He just isn't like that. And we need to ask him to open our eyes to see, to see it. I, I've One of the sermons I could preach this morning from <laughs> Hebrews 2. This is sort of a, this is, this is my kind of sub uh, passage, if you like, a New Testament passage. But it's talking again about uh, in Hebrews 2 about Jesus being in the place of ascendancy and it's, if you read on, I won't be able to read it all here, but talking about the gifts of the Spirit being given and so on. And verse 5 is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, been testified. What is man? Made him a little lower than the angels. Now, in putting everything <clears throat> um, in subjection under the feet of Jesus, verse 8, 
Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. So Jesus has been given that high place. He's been raised up and ascended like Elijah, if you like, from the passage. As it is, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, I like this. I love this little verse. Even though Jesus has been given the place of all authority, we don't yet actually see it fully. And this is a cause of great guilt in sort of charismatic circles because we talk about healings and all kinds of miracles and stuff, and then we don't see very many. So we feel guilty, and we think, well, maybe if I fasted more, or maybe if we prayed more, or maybe this, or maybe that. And we start getting into a works, see? We start getting into a works mindset that God has set this bar up there. We've got to jump that one. We've got to make this happen. But what does he say here? This is a beautiful little verse. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see every last healing take place. But then listen to this, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and authority. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Don't start looking. Now, what, what were the distractions that Elisha could have looked at, you know, rather than Elijah being taken up? Well, I guess when the fiery chariots and stuff were going there, he could have gotten pretty distracted with that, couldn't he? Ministries and activities. But what did he actually say? He did see those. But first, remember he said, my father, my father the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, that's all about spiritual warfare and the prophetic rule of God on the earth. You see that in Zechariah and so on. It's, that's another sermon again. We'll go there. <laughs> okay. But he didn't get his eyes on that. Okay, this, is not, this thing is not about us becoming some amazing superstar prophets that rule the world. That is not our focus. Our focus is Jesus. Make love your aim. We love, look to Jesus, we love Jesus, and in that place, whoa, you will see amazing miracles and stuff, but do not get your eyes on that. Do not get our eyes on that. This is not about us becoming the most famous church. This is not about us becoming greater than other people and all that kind of stuff. All of that kind of thinking is just the wrong direction. It's not love, is it? Keep our eyes on Jesus. We love Jesus. If we're cleaning toilets one day, and changing the world, you know, rulers of the world in intercession the next day, it really doesn't matter. If you love God, his love flows. You know, you know those uh, kind of goofy films, Bruce Almighty? Have you ever seen Bruce Almighty? <laughs> it's a bit rude and a bit crazy. But God is actually portrayed pretty good in there, isn't it? I like that scene where, you know, this Bruce has had ruled for one. He's made a total mess of it, of course, which any man would do. And he, he meets up with God again, and God is just mopping the floor, just mopping the floor. He says, just join me just mopping the floor. And it was kind of prophetic, wasn't it? Like, we're just mopping up this mess that you've made now, just mopping the floor. And, you know, some of the greatest intercession you could ever do might be just mopping the floor. That might be the way you send your fiery chariots out to rule the world. You might clean up a mess in Nigeria or India or some mission problem over there. Just 
by prophetically being a servant here. Do you know that? That's why you've got to just flow in love. If you flow in love, everything you do is beautiful and is God's rule on the earth. If you don't have love, I don't care. You could be the president of the United States or the king of whatever and is absolutely useless. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said? Even if you have all sorts of stuff going on but you don't have love, it's nothing. Whereas if you have love, everything you do is precious and wonderful. Let's finish there because, you know, we could, we're just kind of getting warmed up. But let's finish there because make love your aim. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And just make sure you just chilled right out in that love before you try and do a bunch of stuff. All right? Just relax in that love. Have a Sabbath after you've figured it out. No, and then the next commandment is actually just honor your father and mother anyway. So that's the next thing. There you go. Well done, Anina. <clears throat> father, we thank you. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for myself, my family, for all of us, Lord, that our eyes would be open to see Jesus taken up, that we'd find freedom from guilt, that we'd see his love, that we'd receive that love into our hearts that we'd relax in it, and that everything we do would be done out of love and for love's sake and motivated by love. That wouldn't be a drudgery, Lord. We don't forgive us when we think you're a slave driver. Forgive us for that, Lord. Help us to see you as you really are, beautiful, loving, tender, caring about our weaknesses, looking for the best in us all the time. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You may have been a Christian for a long time, or you may be exploring the possibilities of a relationship with God. Wherever you are in your journey of life, please feel free to contact us at Woolwich Community Church if you would like any further information on today's message. We will be happy to talk with you, pray with you, and help you in any way we can. Please see the information below in our bio on how to get in touch with us. Have a blessed week. And God bless.